Exodus 5, 1 through 9. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of their land now are many, and you make them rest for their burdens. And the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather the straw themselves. But the number of the bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifices to God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Your Bible's open to Exodus chapter 4 and 5. Exodus chapter 4 and 5. This morning we're going to be looking uh, at Exodus 4:27 through 5:14. How does God help? I want to talk about that this morning. How does God help? Now, if you know this or not, but the help you receive generally is kind of decided by the help you need. So, say for example, you're hiking on Mount Hood or something and you get lost, or you break a leg, or, or you just get really tired, because um, it's all uphill. Um, and you can't get off the mountain, you can't, so you're stranded, so you call uh, whatever number you call when you can't get off the mountain, and uh, they're gonna send you help based on where you are. So they might send a helicopter to pick you up off the mountain to take you uh, to safety. Uh, so that's what you would expect. If you have a problem with money, the help you need is a financial help. You might need a loan. You might need a gift. You might need uh, additional income. If your problem is finances, it, the help you're going to get is hopefully financial help. If you're sick, the help you need is maybe a prescription, maybe a doctor visit, maybe a physical therapy or something. It would be strange if you said, well, I'm not feeling well, and somebody said, well, here's $100. You'd say, well... I'll take the 100 bucks, but now I'm still sick. The help you've provided hasn't addressed the actual need I have. And so what we're looking at is, well, how does God help? How does God help as his people are coming to him uh, with significant difficulty, significant burden, and we're going to discover that God helps the same way we're talking about here. He helps in accordance with the need that is there. His help is parallel to and consistent with the problem and the need that is uh, being addressed. So how does God help? Look at Exodus 4.27. Jeff didn't read uh, this part, but let's just, uh, I'll read it real quick. Exodus 4.27 says this, The Lord said to Aaron, that's Moses' brother, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So Aaron went out and met Moses at the mountain of God, and he kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words that God had sent him to speak, and he showed Aaron all the signs that God had commanded him to do. 
Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the leaders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and he did all the signs in the sight of the people. Do you remember the signs? The staff turns into the snake. He can make his hand all leprous. He can make the Nile water turn into blood. Look at verse 31 of Exodus 4. What's it say? And the people believed. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their afflictions, in fact, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. How does God help? We're going to look at three checkpoints on the path of receiving God's help. And what we want to do is understanding what God's help looks like and actually, most importantly, be able to identify ways in which we misunderstand what God is doing because we're going to see that happen in the life of Israel. So first help is the mountaintop. The mountaintop help. And this is the moment of Israel. God has showed up. What do you say when this kind of thing? You pray a prayer, God shows up, it gets answered. What do you say? God is good. This is, this is great. God has, has showed up. And God is good. He has heard my cry and he is visiting me and giving me what is, is needed. You might think of it this way. Say you're stranded on a deserted island. You've been out there for months and months, maybe years, and you've built a fire, a signal fire. You've arranged the trees, so they say... Uh, SOS, planes keep flying over and over and over, nobody ever stops. And one day, you're losing hope, you're beginning to despair, another plane flies over, and you've got your signal fire going, and it's almost to the horizon, then it starts to turn. Whoa, okay. And then he starts circling the island, and now he sees me. And then as he flies away, just as he's flying away, he kind of dips his wings a little bit to signal to you, I'm going to go send help to you. I've seen you. I mean, how do you feel in that moment? That's fantastic. God is good. He's heard my prayer. He has showed up in this moment. And now he is here, and help is coming. It's the mountaintop moment. You might dance around a bonfire with your volleyball Wilson in such a moment. So Moses brings good news to the people of Israel. God has heard your prayer he is going to visit you, God is with you, and he is going to work in you and for you with power. And in fact, he even does miracles to show them this is the powerful work of God that's going to save you. And they are delighted. It says here that they bowed their heads and worshipped because on a mountaintop experience, God has showed up. I'm sure all of us at some point in our life in Christ have had those moments where all of a sudden all the other stuff seemed to fall away, and with a picture-perfect clarity, we could see the movement of God, and we thought we never want to leave. When we were students, that was probably summer camp, and maybe as adults, you've gone to a conference or something of this nature, and you say, I see what's happening here. I hope I never lose this perspective. This also happened to a woman in the life of Jesus. John chapter 4, the woman at the well we're not going to go into it in detail. Jesus goes into Samaria, and he has a conversation with a Samaritan woman who has had multiple relationships outside of marriage. In fact, she is currently residing with a man who is not her husband. God makes no, or Jesus, God himself, makes known to her that he offers her grace and forgiveness, the cool water of life to uh, quench her parched soul. And she believes. This is what it says in John 4, 39 after she went into town and told all the people that the Savior was here and he has given her forgiveness. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Maybe as a sidebar here, 
If you have somebody walk up to you and tell you everything you have ever done wrong, does that bother you? <laughs> We've never met someone like Jesus that he could tell you everything you ever did and you could be happy about it. Have you ever had someone like that before? Have you ever met anyone like that before? Absolutely not. That he could look right into the heart of your being and tell you your darkest thing and say, don't worry about it, I got a handle. That's a pretty cool guy. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them. He stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. In fact, this is what they said to the woman. It is no longer because of you that we believe. We have now heard from ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They encountered the visit of God, God himself in their presence, and they said, we need forgiveness. We need God's grace. God, don't leave us. And on the mountaintop, uh, with perfect clarity, they looked at the Savior in the eyes and said, we need you, we need your grace, and we need your forgiveness. This is how God works in us. His Holy Spirit moves in our heart, and there's a certain point in our life where we say, I'm a sinner. I do wrong. When I'm not doing wrong, I'm planning on how to do wrong, and when I happen to do right, I do it for the wrong reasons. And something happens in our heart, not by our own purposes, but by the Spirit of God and the truth of His Word, where we finally get it, I'm an adulterer. I am filled with lustful thoughts. I'm an idolater. I'm a greedy idolater. I am convinced there's a certain amount of money that will fix my problems. I am a, a hater. I am filled with anger, and I am convinced that if I could finally have justice, everything would be okay. None of those things are true. And we come to a certain point in our life where we say the adultery and the lust and the greed and the money and the anger and the hatred are lying to me. The only place to find hope is forgiveness from all of those things. Jesus, give me your grace. And in that moment, Jesus gives us a tall drink of water for our parched souls. God changes everything in our hearts, and he reveals to us that we need forgiveness, and in fact, we need freedom from our slavery to sin, and we have that through faith. And when that happens, we say God is good. On the mountaintop, having encountered the presence of God himself, we say, God is good. The relief, the rest of knowing there is no longer guilt and shame for me to carry, the, the relief that comes from knowing that God welcomes me no matter what. I don't know what your sin history looks like this week. Maybe you had a good week. Or maybe you had a good week, meaning you swung for the fences. You went varsity level sin this week. Some of us are here in church this morning because we think we offended God so bad, we better get into church and get things right. I've gotten bad news for the people who didn't sin much this week. The guy sitting next to you who swung for the fences is as welcomed by God as you because he does not look to your righteousness to welcome you. He does not look to that other guy's sin to exclude him. Instead, for both in Christ, he looks to Jesus' righteousness and says, you both can come in. The, the pompous, self-righteous guy and that dirty, rotten sinner, too, because they both love Jesus. 
That is great relief. That is good news. Regret, shame, guilt, they lose their grip and fall away. The mountaintop, how does God help? He saves our souls, and we say, God is good. Look again at Exodus 4.31. The people believed. If you think the Old Testament was salvation by works and the New Testament is salvation by faith, you are wrong. Salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament was faith in God alone. The people believed when they heard that the God had visited him and they worshipped God. What this means here is they responded from their heart relationally and emotionally. They wanted to have relational connection with God and they wanted to let him know they were happy with him. Worship is not merely a doctrinal statement. Worship is also the ability to engage our heart and our soul and say, oh God, you are good. And they were moved by God to respond to the truth of his goodness. How does God help? By his grace, God shows up on the mountaintop and we cry out, God is good. Let's keep going. Think back to your deserted island, if you don't mind, as we move on to verses 1 through 9 of Exodus 5. So the boat shows up. The airplane had left, and they told somebody, you've got to go out to this island, so they send a boat out. I don't know why, because that's how the story works. There's no place to land an airplane or a helicopter or anything else. Too many trees. So a boat comes out. The rescue team gets off, and they come and check you out. Say, hey, nice setup you got here, good fire, nice volleyball. And they check you out, check your health, and they say, you know what? It turns out you're kind of sick. In fact, you got a couple of broken bones. You got a pretty serious infection. You don't know about it. You've been stranded on the island so long, you, pay, you don't even pay attention to these things anymore. You are sick. You need to get better. In fact, the problem is you are too sick to travel on this boat back to the mainland. You're going to have to get better before we can get on the boat. What we're going to do is we're going to set up a tent here and start working on you. And as soon as you are strong enough to get on that boat, we'll go. But for now, we're going to stay on the island. What's your response? I don't care how sick I am. I want off the island. Second thing, I say, you should have brought a better boat. <laughs> I mean, how difficult a trip is this? But that misses the point of the illustration. Our agenda is, I want off the island. The help I need is off the island, whereas the rescuers understand the help we need is something different than that. We need to stay on the island for a time until we can get a little better. Let's look at this, the narrative here in uh, Exodus chapter 5. Jeff read it. The people believed, they responded in worship, and then Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and they're stoked, they're excited, like Pharaoh doesn't know what is going to get him. He, it is on. And so they tell Pharaoh everything that God told them to tell. And Pharaoh responds, sorry, God who? I, I literally have never heard of this guy. He seems weak. Where is he? Because I am a God, Pharaoh would say, and I am here, and I am strong. You can make a stick into a snake? I think David Copperfield did that at Caesar's Palace. I don't think Las Vegas existed back then. But anyway, verse 2, who is the Lord, Pharaoh says? Who is he that I should obey him? He seems, seems kind of like a wuss. I don't know the Lord, and I'm not letting Israel go. In fact, what I'm going to do is I want you to keep cranking the bricks out. 
don't know if you know it or not, we need bricks. And you guys make the bricks. We need to continue making bricks, but our cost basis is too high because straw is expensive. So we feel we can increase our brick profitability by eliminating the straw cost center. Now, I know that's not what he said, but that's what he meant. It's in the Hebrew. You go get your own straw. But obviously, since you have so much time on your hands to come in here and talk about your religion, you've got plenty of time to get your own straw, so we're not going to reduce the brick quota. So Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel, likely the elders of Israel, were with them as they go to Pharaoh. They obey God. They do God's things. They do God's things God's way. And what happens? It gets worse. Their burdens are increased. We know from the text here that they didn't expect this to happen. They thought, I'm going to go in and do all of God's business. Pharaoh's going to fall over dead and probably make us king of Egypt. And we may not even have to travel. But the people were completely blindsided by this. They went and did everything God had called them to do, and it backfired in their mind. It got worse. In obedience, God's people did not experience relief. They, in fact, experienced opposition. The first step on the path is that mountaintop experience. You say, God is good. The next step on the path is the opposition we face. And then we put a question mark on that statement. Instead of saying God is good, what do we say? Well, well is God good? I mean, we thought he was in the mountain, but now it feels weird. Now it feels burdensome and hard. I thought when you did things God's things, God's way, everything went great. Pharaoh completely disregarded God, and in the short term anyway, he had total victory over the people of Israel. God didn't step in and prevent him from increasing their burdens. Notice in the story that they didn't go wandering around Egypt and find mysterious piles of straw stashed here and there, miraculously provided by God. Why didn't he do that? He could rain manna down for 40 years. He couldn't rain straw down for a couple of days. And now the people are saying, is God good? We're doing things the way he has called us to do it, and it's gone from bad to worse. Look what happens. Well, we're going to skip that. Go to Psalm 22. Let's, talk, let's uh, look at another guy who had the same feelings about God. Psalm 22. This is the Psalm of David. It is quoted and fulfilled by Christ on the cross, but David was experiencing real hardship, real difficulty, where he was serving in faithfulness to God, yet all of his enemies were winning. And this was his prayer. <clears throat> Might I suggest if somebody got up one day at a prayer meeting here at church and prayed this prayer, we'd ask him to sit down. Here's what he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer, and I cry all night, and I find no rest. Does that sound like somebody upset with God? Have you ever prayed prayers like that? I hope you have. Look how he describes to God his situation in verse 12 of Psalm 22. All my enemies are around me. They are like strong bulls of Bashan. The cattle of Bashan were the biggest and the strongest because of the fine pasturing there. 
They open their mouths at me like ravening and a roaring lion. His enemies are these giant lions that are as big as giant steer. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Have you ever had so much anxiety your heart doesn't even settle and you have aches and pains in your body? Have you ever been there? Where you are so worried that your stomach is so tight that it's cramping and this is David. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Your dogs surround me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet, and I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments. This is the cry of someone pursuing God, and everything is going wrong, and from their guts they cry out, What in the world are you doing, God? The enemy seems near and strong, and I thought you were going to be near and strong. God, I thought on that mountaintop you were going to never leave me nor forsake me, and now that we're here in the valley facing opposition, it seems like the enemy will never leave me nor forsake me. Why is the enemy near God and you are absent? In opposition, we are tempted, like Israel, to say, you know, God is good, but is, is God good? We have to understand something about what God was up to with the people of Israel and what he's up to in working in our lives. God told Israel the destination. What was the destination? Promised land, land flowing with milk and honey. He didn't tell them how they were going to get there. He didn't tell them the path they were going to have to walk on to get from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. See, our primary concern is the destination. In God's mind, he will never separate the destination from the path to get there. Those two work together. And what we want to do is, God, what I want you to do is save me and take me to the promised land. And God says, I will. And we're going to follow this path. God, have you been down that path? It's awful. And God is saying, that's why we're taking that path. The path that we take between here and kingdom come is a part of that destination, is a part of God's plan. Jesus made it quite clear in Matthew chapter 16. He says this in verse 21 of Matthew 16. He was teaching his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. In fact, he was going to have to be killed and on the third day raised from the dead. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Before you go hard on Peter, you do it all the time, so simmer down. Far be it from you, Lord, Peter says, this will never happen to you. We should say this, Peter, thank you for nearly destroying all of the universe. Because without Christ's death, it's all, it's all toast. But thankfully, Jesus says this to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So what we have to understand about when we face opposition and we say this is not the way it ought to be, that is setting our minds on our things and not God's things. 
God knows the way things ought to be, and they're not our way. Our way would be very different from God. Peter would have kept Jesus from going to the cross. We would have a path that is straight as an arrow with no difficulty. In fact, maybe a blessing. In fact, maybe that path should be so good we may not even need a promised land. And that is not the things of God. The things of God is a path designed to help us to be ready when it's time to cross the threshold. Jesus also said it this way over in John chapter 6, because some of us are wondering why it has to be this way. This is John chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus was teaching. He says this, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Just so you know, that's really gross. He's being gross on purpose. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You notice that little last reference. Not like the bread the fathers ate. What bread was that? Manna. So he's talking about Exodus. In the, in the promise, uh, in, uh, on, I should say, in the wilderness, on the way to the promised land, they ran out of food, and God provided them manna each and every day. Every day they had to get up and get that day's food. God created an economy where they had to depend on God every day for that day. You don't get tomorrow. Intentionally creating in the people of Israel a system by which they just counted on God for today. And every day they got up and said, God, I trust you again today. Jesus is saying one of the reasons he gives us the path he gives us is that we might learn before we go across the threshold into the kingdom, we might learn to depend on him each and every day because that is a really, really good thing. Living a life here in faith where we rest in Christ more and more each and every day, that is the greatest gift that God can give us. And he says, I promise you, I will give you the best thing I can give you. I will give you whatever it takes to get you to let go of this world and cling to Jesus only. In order to do that, you're going to have to face opposition. See, when we face opposition and we wonder, is God good? That question only comes up if Jesus is lame. But when we understand what Jesus is doing, that he's giving us all of himself every single day, is God good? We say, well, yeah, give me Jesus. How, how much better could he get? When Jesus said this to the crowds, because some of you are a little bit annoyed by this, let me read the response typical to this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Why, why would they leave after he shared this? Because I want Jesus and the world. I want a good, fulfilling relationship with Jesus and everything this world has to offer. And Jesus is saying those two don't go together. He's going to take us down a path where he empties our hands of this world so that finally we have two hands to grab onto him with. And once we, we realize that's what he's up to, many of us are going to say, Oh, I thought this was different than it is. I didn't realize these are 
really crazy Christian people who actually think there's a resurrection. They actually think this guy's going to show up on a white horse one day. Oh, I thought this was just sort of a civic organization where you try to help the community out. No, we really are that crazy. I mean that in the nicest way. But if we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, what are we doing? And this is what Jesus has said. I'm going to take you down a path where you're going to routinely have to confront the reality. Do you believe he's really raised from the dead? Because if he is, we're still okay. In fact, we're doing pretty good. Last verse, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He is saying this, Depend on me totally. Don't worry about it. I'm just going to take you through a course of life that's going to be, a, a, in a sense, a crucifixion where we're ru- routinely being uh, worked through so that we might let go of the world and, and our own fleshly desires and hold more tightly to Christ. But don't worry because the destination is the kingdom of God, heirs to the throne, sons and daughters of the king. It's going to be great. Jesus says he's going to teach us total dependence, but it's going to require facing opposition here in this land. First step, the mountaintop experience. God is good. Second step, opposition. And our hearts get weak, and we say, is God really good? Right, let's go back to our deserted island. We're still stuck there, but we're, now we're in treatment. Still with me? Volleyball's still there. He's good. They're doing the treatment. The problem is you're on a deserted island. You've got a couple of broken bones, some bad infections, probably a tooth that's bad, if I remember the movie right. And all of a sudden, you realize the treatment for your ailment is worse than the ailment was. Anybody ever had that kind of treatment before? Like, I was sick, and then I went to the doctor, and I wish I was just sick. Because the treatment for it's worse. If you haven't had that happen yet, you're just not old enough. It's coming. Don't you worry. So we're getting treatment there, and it's making us better, but it's, it's worse than being sick. And so finally, we say, what? I don't even care about getting off this island. I just want to feel better. I just don't want to hurt anymore. This sucks, and I want, the, I want it to stop. Exodus 5, verse 10. Look what happens. Before we read it, let me explain the management structure. You had Pharaoh, and he had appointed Egyptian taskmasters. And the Egyptian taskmasters were upper management. Middle management were the foremen, and those were Israeli folks, Hebrews, and they had immediate oversight with the work groups. So you had the workers, brickmakers, you had the foremen who oversaw those groups, and then you had the Egyptian taskmasters. Let's read Exodus 10, 5, 10 through 14. So the taskmasters, they are what? Egyptian. And the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout Egypt, gathering stubble for straw. They're pulling weeds that were this tall, just trying to get little stubble that they could have something to put in the bricks so the bricks would stay together. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, even 
the same amount of bricks as when there were straw. Verse 14, And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmaster had set over them, were beaten. Why have you not fulfilled your quota? The beatings will continue till morale improves. Why haven't you done your quota? Obviously, you have nothing but time on your hands if you can worry about, be worried about trying to get out of Egypt to go worship your lame-o God. Can't even help you make bricks. So now we've gone from the mountaintop to opposition, and now we're in the third step, suffering. It's not just opposition. Now it hurts. Now the foremen are getting beaten. In 2002 at the Winter Olympics, there was sort of a scandal during one of the ice skating events. <clears throat> they awarded the gold medal to the Russian team, but they found out that the skating judge from the French coalition had uh, been influenced to award the gold medal to the Russians, even though they may not have felt that they had the best performance. The issue was this. The French didn't have any skaters in that particular event, but they knew if the Russians won, it would improve their chances at another event that was coming up later in the competition. So it was in the interest of the French judge that the Russians would win. Canadians came in second with silver, but their outfits were phenomenal. Now, I have no idea. I don't. There's no way for me to know that. They all look the same to me. Are you going to put sequins on it? Yes? Okay. Well, you can. I mean that in the nicest way. If you're into ice skating, it's great. The best, I think the best, what's it called? Oh, hockey. Um, <laughs> so anyway, this judge decided what was good. You know what would be good is if the Russians won. Because then the French have better chances later. So the judge sits in their seats and they decide what is good and what is not good. In suffering, we decide what is good. And what we say is suffering is not good. The ending of suffering is good. In fact, in suffering, the temptation is to decide that actually I am the judge of what is good. Suffering is always bad, isn't it? So, first we say in the mountaintop, God is good. Then in opposition, we say, is God good? And then during suffering, we say, good is God. I don't even care who God is, but I do know one thing. If this suffering will stop, I will be happy. So now we have taken God out of the picture and what is, is good, what we have decided ought to be, our comfort, our peace, our continuity of life, now that's my God. The ending of suffering now becomes the object of my worship because I alone have the ability to determine what ought to be. God clearly has no ability whatsoever to, de to determine what is good in this situation. In fact, let's just be honest, what is good? It's whatever I want, and I want the suffering to stop. Pharaoh acted in this situation, and he sent out his taskmasters, and the taskmasters are beating the Hebrew foreman, and this, of course, in Moses' mind, is going to take him back to 40 years earlier when he was beating an Egyptian himself and killed him. And this is how the people respond. We're going to cover the second half of this passage next week, but look down just as a, a taste of what's to come. Verse 21 of Exodus 5. The people said to Moses and Aaron, 
The Lord look on you and judge. You have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You morons. Before we were just being beaten to death. Now we're being beaten to death. Wait. (laughs) Nothing's changed except now it's your fault, Moses. May God judge you for bringing upon us that which God wanted to bring upon us. See, now they have gotten rid of God. He is no use to them. He is no longer convenient to them. He is no longer helpful to them because that God has the insistence on only following his plan and refusing to do what we want because he knows what is good. We don't. In the beginning of this account, Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron in so many words, what can your God do with a smirk? What can your God do? And now Israel comes to Moses and Aaron and says, what can your God do? If your God can't make this suffering end, to us he's not God. Because we know what is good. Maybe we can phrase it this way. God is good as long as he agrees with me as to what is good. So therefore, what is good in my mind is now God. Now let's be honest, isn't this how we think? God is good as long as my life is going the way it ought to be, and then as soon as it kind of gets cattywampus, wait a second, God might be kind of a Neanderthal. He has no idea what he's doing. Or worse yet, what if he does know what he's doing and he's evil? Now, you wouldn't say that out loud, but you might feel that way. So those of us born in sin, spending our lives living in sin, now have the audacity to say to God, you aren't good. In his patience and kindness, he is going to show us he actually is. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27. You need to understand this a little bit. The Bible tells us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what was going on in Moses' mind at the time. Hebrews eleven twenty seven says this, By faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of Pharaoh, for Moses endured as seeing God who is invisible. So Pharaoh got all angry. Moses, it said, did not need to be afraid because he trusted more in God he could not see than in Pharaoh and the suffering he could see. Moses, by faith, could see God and his power and his goodness was greater than the power of Pharaoh himself. In fact, we'll see this over in Exodus 15, after the people of Israel are delivered from Egypt and after they pass through the Red Sea, they write a song about it. I'm going to read just a couple of verses of the song. This is after the Red Sea had closed in on Pharaoh's army and destroyed their chariots and horses and their military. This is what they sang. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. 
And what Israel does, at least for this moment, is they see that God was doing a greater victory that could only be accomplished through their suffering. And when they got to the end of the road, they said, oh, okay, we see what you're doing. And they, and they sing a whole song about it. It's all of Exodus 15. See, now we see what you're up to. You wanted to accomplish an even greater victory that required our suffering so that you could have even greater glory and power over your enemies. David said the same thing over in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 4 and 5. Remember, we were reading that psalm earlier, but let me read another part we skipped. Remember that whole psalm about how God forsaken him and all that other stuff? Listen to what he says. In your father, in you, our fathers trusted God. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So what David could see looking back at Israel coming out of Egypt, he could see how their suffering led to the glorious victory of God over all of his enemies. So what David was doing is this, I am suffering and I am praying to God that he might help me even though it's extraordinarily hard, but I'm going to keep in mind that God is going to use this suffering to bring an even greater victory. I have greater faith in the unseen God than my seen suffering. The Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, said the exact same thing. Romans 8 verse 18 says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He says, I don't know how bad your suffering is, but I consider that when we get to the end, when we stand on the other side of the threshold of this world and look back, we'll say, first of all, oh, I get it. Oh, now that makes sense. I see, oh, duh. Then we'll say, and that wasn't even that bad. I thought my world was ending. Now, now I'm looking at, at all of eternity in front of me, and that suffering in light of eternity is a little bit less than I thought it was at the time. I'll emphasize this again. There is a promised land. There is an eternal kingdom of God in Christ that we have the joy of participating in. We don't know what this life holds, but we know where we're going. Randy Alcorn, his book on heaven, and if you haven't read it, you ought to read it. One of the things he says, one of the biggest problems Christians have living the Christian life is we have a lame view of heaven. Of course we want all we can get out of this life if heaven is sitting on clouds playing harps. Seriously? That would be fun for like a minute. Maybe. I don't even know how to play harp. That's a lame view of heaven. We're not going to get into it today. Read Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. One of the ways we endure in this life is say, that's going to be awesome. There is a promised land. We don't know what this life holds, but we know where we're going. Okay. Four points and then we're done. First thing we need to understand about our life, as we see in this book of Exodus, is this story that's being told in our life and as we're a part of it and what the, uh, what the Bible is teaching us, the grand theme of all of creation is God's story, not our story. Everything that God is doing, he is doing to tell us about what he is up to, not what we are up to. Maybe I can put it this way. The greatest life 
you could live is not as good as life in God's story. The greatest you could do on your own, whatever a home run is for you, is not going to be as good as what it looks like to be a part of what God is doing. And what God is doing involves at least three things. The mountaintop, opposition, and suffering guaranteed 100%. To be a Christian is to, at times, if not often, face opposition and suffering as well as the joy of the Lord. Our greatest life is not as great as life in God's story. Second thing, God is faithful. At some point in your life in Christ, you will question everything you know about God because the suffering will be that bad. Many of us have already been there. There will be a point in your life where it is that bad that everything you believe about God, you will question. In that moment, we must rest in the truth of the word and say, when I refuse to cling to God, he refuses to let go. We are anticipating life with him forever, not because of our ability to hold on to him, but because of his ability to hold on to us. He will be faithful even when our world completely explodes. That's important to know. And you're saying, why does it matter? Because you're not there yet. When you get there, you're going to need that. Okay, thirdly, you're going to hate this, so I'm going to tell you anyway. Don't blame me. Well, you can if you want, whatever. God isn't very practical, and God isn't very reasonable. I've talked to him about this. Um, he's not coming around. God is not very practical. God is not very reasonable. What do I mean by this? God offered the people of Israel the promised land, he was not offering them a reasonably easy way to make bricks. At that point in their life, that's what they would have taken. Just a little bit easier life making bricks. And God has zero interest in making their brick making easier because that's not what they were called to do. They were called to a totally different thing. But how often is that exactly what we're doing? God, I just need my life to be a little easier. And he's going, we're doing something a little bit bigger than making your life convenient. I'm calling you to eternity in the promised land. Now, we should seek the Lord in those things we want him to intervene in. But we have to understand he is not a genie. He is not a rabbit's foot. He is not there to help our life go better. In fact... Most times he's there to make it go worse, that we might let go of stuff and cling to him alone. God isn't practical. He's terribly unreasonable. He just simply insists on having his way. It's terribly frustrating. I don't know. I don't have to tell you. Except I'll tell you this. Your way is lame compared to his. My way is lame compared to his. It's hard to get our head around that, isn't it? His way is better because he is good. All right, last thing. I'll end with this. I don't even know if this will make sense. Uh, one last question and then uh, a page from a book I want to read to you. What if, just say for example, I, I came to you and I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to judge your life. I want to judge whether or not you're a good person. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to judge your goodness based on one year of your life. And I get to pick the year. So very quickly, I can look over the course of your life and I can just pick any year I want and I'm going to judge whether or not you're a good person based on that year. 
How would you respond to that? You probably wouldn't like that. I say, I'm going to pick that year. What are you talking about? I had no idea what I was doing then. It's a terrible year to pick. You can judge me based on that one year, but here's what we do. Is we have a, what we view as a bad run with God for five or ten years, and we think the guy's an ogre. God, who has been working faithfully for the good of all of humankind, for all of eternity, and we've had a bad five or ten years, and we think he's a jerk. We wouldn't do that to anyone else in our life. What he wants us to do by faith is say, maybe we can expand the view of him a little bit bigger. He is not saying what you're going through is hard. He is not saying what you're going through is easy. He is not saying that you should just suck it up and not be upset about it. But he is saying this. When we look at what he's been up to, when we get to the end of things, we will say, he was so good. He saved my bacon so many times by putting me through hardship. And in this moment, maybe we could trust God that he is good even in the uh, the uh, immense difficulty we're under right now. Just two paragraphs from a book called The Prodigal Prophet, Jonah and the Mystery of God's Mercy. It just came out by a guy named Tim Keller. If you hate Tim Keller, that's fine. You know, Don't judge me, but judge the passage. I happen to think there's a great book. I don't often recommend books, but you may find it helpful. Here's what he says. One of the main reasons that we trust God too little is because we trust our own wisdom too much. We think we know far better than God how our lives should go and what will make us happy. Listen, every human being who has ever lived into middle age knows how often we have been mistaken about what makes us happy. Yet our hearts continue to operate on the same principle year after year. We remember how foolish we were at the age of 20, but we think now that we're 40, we know all there is to know about what it takes to be happy. But God only knows. Why are the, only, the older people smiling at this? The younger people are like, what are you talking about? You'll get there. Therefore, because of our deep mistrust of God's goodness and word, we do everything we can to get out from under his hand. This is really the most fundamental temptation that there has been since the beginning of the world. It is the original sin. Specific details might vary, but the deep heart song is, of our soul is this, I have to look out for myself. What we learn from the people of Israel in Exodus is God is looking out for us. On the mountaintop, when we're facing opposition and in suffering by faith, we can say in each one of those situations, no, no, God is, is, God is really good. 